One of the things that Jan and Larry didn't share is that they are phenomenal at neighboring on Halloween. In fact, they're, they're one of the hot spots that kids in the neighborhood stop at. Jan was telling me um, a couple years, last year I think, that a little guy came to the door and he was dressed as Darth Vader. And Larry answered the door excited and he goes, Luke, I am your father. And the little boy pulls his mask back and he goes, hi, Pastor Larry. <laughs> ah, this is so cute. We actually took our kids over to see Jan and Larry um, a number of years, and it was the highlight of, of their trick-or-treating. They really enjoyed it. It was, um, not only did they get to see Jan and Larry, but they also got great candy. So it was one of, one of the requests each year. Their experience of Halloween was very different from my own. I found trick-or-treating to be a little bit disappointing. I'm the daughter of a dentist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can only imagine. So my parents used to drive us around to different, uh, different houses of their friends, and we would show up, and they would open the door, we'd say trick-or-treat, and you would see the giant bowl of candy, and so our eyes would get really big, and then they would very politely say, we have something special for you. And it was always like an apple or a sticker. It was, it was very disappointing. I, always, I think it's hilarious that Jimmy Kimmel is brilliant at capturing the disappointment of kids. He actually does this thing called a Halloween prank. How many of you have seen it? It is so funny. So we actually pulled together a clip of this year's top Halloween pranks and the looks of disappointment on these kids' faces. Take a look. Once again, this year. <laughs> uh. Probably be a little bit more vulnerable if our kids videotaped us when we were disappointed. Actually think that as we're talking about, we're in the midst of a series on the life of Moses, and I think it's pretty interesting because we see again and again little video shots of the disappointment of the Israelites, despite God's continued faithfulness. So I just wanted to take a minute to kind of recap where we're at in the story, and I thought it was most appropriate to do that by looking at a map. Our story started up here in Egypt when the Israelites were enslaved, and um, God brought the plagues, Moses helped um, lead the people out of Israel, and they were freed. God walked them across the land, parted the Red Sea, they walked across the Red Sea because it was dry, And then he continued to provide for them in the midst of their hunger. He gave them manna. But they, again and again, were, they were um, complaining. They were not sure of his faithfulness. So then last, the last couple of weeks, we got a glimpse into their time at Mount Sinai, where God made a covenant with his people. He committed to them. They committed to him. And yet again, despite his faithfulness, they, um, got, they were afraid. They were disappointed. They decided to make this golden calf, this image of him. And um, God forgave them. Moses prayed on the people's behalf, and God renewed his covenant with his people. So we see this cycle of God's faithfulness and the disappointment of the people despite his faithfulness. 
Today, we're going to talk about kind of this new section. They're, they're entering into a new arena. And today's passage um, story, we're going to take out of Numbers 13 and 14. I'm going to tell a lot of the story instead of read a lot of it. Um, it's a narrative, and so I think it's appropriate just to kind of retell it. Um, but it starts out with this, this idea that God says to Moses, hey, it's time. We've prepared the people. We've walked them across the land. The promised land is right in front of you. But first, I'm going to have you send out some spies. I want you to check out the land. And really what God is saying is, I want this opportunity for the spies to go into the land so that they can show the people the land is indeed good. He wanted to make sure that, again, he's showing his faithfulness to the people. And so Moses pulls together these 12 spies. The 12 spies are leaders representative of the 12 nations. And he gives them a bit of a checklist of things to look for in the promised land. He says, um, you know, find out about the Canaanites, the people that live there. Are they strong or are they weak? Are they rich or are they poor? Are Are there many of them or just a few? Then he said, check out the land. Is it fertile or is it fallow? Are there trees or no trees? And make sure you find out about the cities. Are they fortified or unwalled? Bring back a report of what you find. And so Moses sends out the spies. It takes them about 40 days. They're gone that amount of time. And as you can imagine, the Israelites, there's a couple hundred thousand of them, I'm sure are waiting in anticipation. What are these spies gonna bring back? And so 40 days later, sure enough, the spies come back and everybody gathers around. So everybody's waiting in anticipation. Moses is there, Aaron's there, all of the people are there, and the, the 12 spies come together and they say, Great news. We found that the land is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. It, is, it has fruit. They brought back this, these giant grapes. This, it's this image of these grapes that were so big that it took two people to carry them back. So you can imagine if we're the 200,000 people were thinking, yes, the thing that God's been talking about and that he's promised us is finally coming true. We are so excited. The land is right here. We're going to go into it. We've escaped the slavery in Egypt. All we have to do is take a few more steps. So they are so excited. You know, it's interesting. Their their excitement around the land isn't just solidified by the fact that the spies returned and by the fact that these grapes, of the evidence of the grapes, this story has been passed on. Remember, this was, this was an oral culture that their stories were passed on from generation to generation. And back in Genesis 12, we hear kind of this vision of the land that God gave to Abram. Remember, Abram later became Abraham, and he said this in Genesis 12, six through seven. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. These Israelites, they're in prime, they're in this prime place to accept the gift that God has given them. They've seen the fruit, they've heard the reports from the spies, they have the stories that have been passed down. There's another story later in Genesis 15 that gives even more specifics about the size of the land, the breadth of the land, So there's everything points to, yes, we can believe that what God has said is true. And then 
Numbers 13, 28 through 29, has a little bit of a change. It starts with the word but. You know it's never a good thing when spies show up and they tell a report about something that's really good and then they say but. It's never a good thing when your kids come home and they tell you a story about how things are going at school and then they start the next sentence with but. You know something's coming. So this is what they say. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. The Amalekites live in the the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. You know, there's something that's going on here where all of a sudden these spies are starting to doubt. There's seeds of doubt that are going on. And part of that has to do with these descendants of the Amalekites. They're known to be larger than the average human being. We've got an image up here. So if, if the average human is on the left, think of the person that's next, next in line. That's kind of what they're imagining. They're saying the land is great and the fruit is phenomenal. And yes, it flows with milk and honey, but, but there are these giants that live there and, and the cities are big and we're just not sure. All of a sudden, they're starting to doubt what God had said. So now think again. We're the 200,000 people who are standing, watch, standing there watching all of this unfold. We have these 12 spies. 10 of them are telling us, yeah, it's good, but there's two that are actually going to take a different perspective. One of them's Caleb, and he's the one I'm actually going to talk about this morning. The other one's Joshua. So I'm not going to mention him, but I would encourage you to read um, Numbers 13 and 14 sometime this week. I know that reading Numbers is probably not the thing that you've thought of first, but this is a really great story, so I want to encourage you to do so. But you'll find that it's actually Caleb and Joshua that both, both speak up. But Caleb has a very different perspective. He says, wait a minute. The land that has been offered to us, we, sh- we need to go into it. We can take it. What's happening here is God, Caleb is trusting in something that the other spies have forgotten about. And it all has to do with land. Now that sounds a little bit odd because when we think of land, we think of a piece of property and, and we think somebody owns the land, somebody doesn't own the land. For the Israelites, the land was actually a key component of their covenant with God. In fact, some would argue that land is, there's, the, there's this agreement between God, people, and the land. It's all intertwined. You can't disconnect one without the other. That land is actually a representation of God's presence. And that, that when you don't include the land in the story, we're missing an element of the importance of it. So for Caleb, he's saying, well, wait a minute. Of course we would go into the land because he's trusting in God's presence. Walter Brueggemann is a theologian and he actually wrote a great book on the land. And he's got a quote that says this, the land for which Israel yearns and which it remembers is never unclaimed space but is always a place with Yahweh, a place well filled with memories of life with him and promise from him and vows to him. It is land that provides the central assurance to Israel of its historicality, 
that it will be and always must be concerned with actual rootage in a place that is a repository for commitment and therefore identity. Biblical faith is surely about the life of a people with God as he has been shown by all the current and recent emphases on covenant in a historical place. And if God has to do with Israel in a special way, as he surely does, he has to do with land as a historical place in a special way. It will no longer do to talk about Yahweh and his people, but we must speak about Yahweh and his people and his land. What's happening in this moment is that these 10 spies have the exact same experience that Caleb does. They know that the land is good, they've seen it for themselves, they know that it's fruitful, and they know that there are these people there that really are larger, and that there are these cities that are fortified, and that there are, there's, there's power that's there. They all agree on that. What they disagree on is that the majority of the spies have put their reliance in their own abilities. Their trust is in themselves, and their fear is that they aren't powerful enough to overcome these people. What Caleb has, has said, what he's standing up for, what he's using his voice courageously to say in opposition to the rest of these spies is, wait a minute, we have a covenant with God, the creator God, the God who made a covenant with us about the land, and the land represents his presence. And if he invites us into that gift, of course we go. Because it doesn't matter who's in that land, God overcomes all. So there's this tension going on. The problem is, is that all of these people, they're watching this play out, have an issue. We have an issue on our hands. Do we believe the 10 leaders that we probably helped appoint or do we listen to the one or two that are speaking up over here? It's a very real tension that we need to make sure that we put ourselves in the midst of the story or we miss some of the significance. What we find out is what the people decide. So there's this choice. All of a sudden, they, the choice is, do we enter the land or do we not enter the land? Well, Numbers 14 goes on and tells us what, what the people decide. But the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked, to save, looked the same to them. These 10 spies know that the people in front of them are having to figure out which way to go and they are so sure that they're right that they actually just escalated their story. They just took it to a whole nother level and actually exaggerated it. So all of a sudden, that picture we saw a few minutes ago about the giants, it wasn't the second person in line, it was the person way over on the other side. They're actually comparing themselves in size to grasshoppers. They're saying we are so small and so insignificant that we were like grasshoppers in comparison to all of these other people. Now think about it for a minute. We're having to decide corporately whether we're gonna go into this land. And we don't decide as individuals, we decide as a group. 
We have to make a decision based off of those who may be elderly and it, it may be hard for them to travel. We, may, we need to make decisions based off of the wellness of our children, of our families. Will there be enough for us to eat? We've got a lot that we're, that we're thinking about. So if we were unsure a minute ago when they were talking about the fact that the cities were fortified, all of a sudden we're really unsure because the comparison just escalated. So the, the author is, is building up here. He's building up to help us see there's this tension between Caleb and the rest of the spies and the people are having to decide what to do. Here's, here's, the, here's the next plot. Here's the, where the plot thickens. Numbers 14, one through four. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will, take, be, will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We corporately just decided that it was better for us to either die in the desert or go back to slavery in Egypt to enter in, than to enter into the land promised by God. Do you read that and think, that seems ridiculous? Because I read this over and over and over again and I kept thinking, that's crazy. Like how many times does God have to give you food and show you his presence and renew his covenant? And how in the world were 200,000 people tricked into thinking that it was better to go back to slavery? Back to slavery? Why, why would we all go back to slavery when we're looking at the promised land? And then I started thinking a little bit more about it and I realized I'm the spies. I'm the spies because I resonate with the decision of the Israelites. The more that I think about it, their response is really a response of fear. They're afraid of the people. They're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of the size of the cities. They're afraid for their families. They're afraid. Sometimes I miss the opportunity to step into God's promised land. I miss the opportunity to step into the things that he might have before me because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the unknown. I'm afraid for the safety of my family. I'm afraid when, I don't, when I'm unsure of my own security or the security of those around me. I'm no different than the Israelites because I'm afraid. And fear does something to our psyche that makes us respond in ways that may be against the logic we use when things feel safe and secure. I would suggest that you may be like the spies as well. I found a 2018 study by Chapman University that lays out the top 10 fears of Americans. It's interesting, these actually line up with my fears. See if they line up with yours. The top fear of 2018 is corruption of government officials. 
Now think about it, that, a lot of that represents safety, right? Like it's, if our leaders are corrupt, we're not sure how they're gonna respond when it comes to important decisions that may impact us. The next two are really around pollution, global warming, the future. That third one, not having enough money for the future, has to do with security. And then those next two in black, people I love becoming seriously ill and people I love dying, has to do with the well-being of the people we care about. Then we've got three more that have to do with pollution and global warming, and then we come back to that health one, high medical bills. We're like, the, we're like the Israelites because we have a lot of fears. So when we read this story of Numbers 13 and 14, as easy as it is for us to get to this point of thinking, my goodness, people, how many times does God have to show you? We need to remember that we're talking to ourselves. My goodness, people. How many times does God have to remind us? It's interesting to see how the spies respond to their fear. These, again, go read 13 and 14 because you'll see some of these words come out. One word that comes up a couple of times is grumble. And to grumble means to make God your adversary. These people aren't just complaining. They're actually saying, God, you are, you're my enemy. I am so afraid and I'm so mistrustful that I have now made you my enemy. They also respond by holding God in contempt and disregarding his guidance. They're holding him responsible and ignoring his word because they don't trust him. They disobey God and turn away from him. There's actually this pretty incredible image if you think about it. Here are the people of Israel, they're facing the promised land. And then all of a sudden when they say, we would rather go back to Egypt, if, if land represents God's presence, they were facing his presence, going to Egypt is a literal turning their back on him. They are completely turning away from God. And ultimately, they choose death apart from God instead of life with him. Here's the struggle for me in the response of the spies, is that if I can relate to the fear of the spies, I think I might be able to relate to the response of the spies. If our fears are similar, how much so are our responses similar? For me, the time in my life that was the hardest and the darkest and um, the most isolative from God was when our son died of a heart defect. And I was destroyed. And it felt lonely and um, God felt distant. I wasn't sure he was there. And as I reflected back on that experience, these things were true for me. I grumbled and made God my adversary. Because to be honest, if he was a God that was gonna take my son, 
then I didn't want anything to have, I didn't want anything to do with him and I made him my enemy. I held God in contempt and disregarded his guidance because I didn't trust him. Why would I, I didn't want to listen to him because I didn't, I, I didn't like him at all. I disobeyed God and turned away from him. I had no desire to face him in those darkest times. I wanted to turn my back on him. And ultimately, it seemed to me like choosing death was a much better option than choosing life. It was a deep, dark, desperate time where none of the logic, logical things I knew about God worked. My toolbox was empty and my response was this response of fear and desperation. My guess is that some of you in this room are in that dark place. That you're in the midst of a marriage that's a train wreck or has just ended. And, and your fear is you don't know what the future holds. That your life has been taken over by some sort of addiction and you don't even know how to get out. You're afraid of even looking for alternatives because there's some sort of safety in what we know in the addiction. You know, one of the things that struck me, I was talking to a friend who works in a church um, in an urban setting. And she was saying, you know, the thing about my church is that everyone's a mess and they just, they just lay it out there. You know what we do in the suburbs? Everyone's a mess and we hide it. We make it seem like we are good to go. As long as things look good on the outside, everything is fine on the inside. But, but that's not true. We're afraid to be authentic and real and share the mess of our lives so we don't, we hide. We are no different than the Israelites because we allow our fears to let, let us um, hide. They take us over and instead of facing the promised land, we turn to what we know and that's the brokenness of our lives and we turn away from God. The question then becomes, how in the world did Caleb respond differently than everyone else? Why were there 200,000 people that all agreed that turning their back on God seemed to be the right way to go and Caleb somehow saw something different? So I wanna look at that here for a few minutes. Um, let me go back to Numbers 14, 17 through 19. One of the things, the biggest thing that happened for Caleb is that Caleb recognized the nature of God. And so he responded out of that nature. Here's what this part of the passage says. Um, Moses, this is actually Moses speaking. So Moses is reflecting God's character back to himself. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of his parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them 
from the time they left Egypt until now. What Caleb knows is God's character, and so then he responds out of God's character. The problem is, is that the the Israelites have this misrepresentation of the character of God. Here's Here's their misrepresentation of God. The Israelites saw God as a God who was waiting to punish. That whole line of, God, you've brought us up to this point, and now you're just leaving us here to die. That's that's looking at God as a punishing God. That he's abounding in wrath. That it's like they think that God's waiting to strike this lightning bolt down and, and do away with them. Despite the fact that he continues to remind them that regardless of their unfaithfulness, he is faithful. Regardless of their unfaithfulness, he is faithful. They're worried that he's abounding in wrath. They think that God is a God that holds a a grudge and that he's a God who's unjust. If this is their representation of God, it may make sense that they're turning a different direction. I wonder how often this is our representation of God. How often do we think that God's waiting to punish us? That was me for Aiden. Is he punishing me? Did, did my son die because he's punishing me for something that I did in my earlier years? Is he abounding in wrath? Is God this, this storybook God that we saw years and years and years ago that was this white great-grandfather on this throne that was this distant lightning bolt God who was waiting to pour his wrath out on us? That fit for me. Does God hold a grudge? Was there, was there something that maybe didn't even happen with me but happened with my parents or my grandparents? Is he holding a grudge and it's now my, I somehow have to pay the consequence for that and he chose to do that through the death of my kid? Is God unjust? We take God and we turn him into an idol, but our idol is not positive. We misconstrue the image of God and it has massive consequences detrimental consequences. Turn away from God consequences. I don't want to have anything to do with you consequences. I can't ever be a follower of Jesus because I don't like that guy consequences. In contrast, here's what Caleb knew. The true character of God. That he's slow to anger that he's abounding in love. He's a forgiver of sin and rebellion. That he's just. I'm gonna read those again. Because I think some of us need to redefine the character of God. God is slow to anger abounding in love, forgiver of sin and rebellion, 
and just. One of the gifts that I got when I was in the midst of my dark was a reshaping of God's true character. It had been so misconstrued that I didn't want anything to do with God. And what I realized was that I was enslaved to my misconceptions. It was like I was in a prison cell, looking out the bars, feeling trapped, except the door was open, and all I had to do was step outside to freedom. But I was choosing not to because I felt safe in the misconstrued image of God. It was easier for me to stay with what I knew than to step into the risk of the unknown. It was in the moment that I realized that the door was open and stepped out that I was able to stand with courage and with conviction and say, it is well with my soul. That's not logical when your kid has died. But it makes sense when you're standing in the presence of a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. That's what Caleb knew. Caleb knew and Caleb stood up for and Caleb fought for the true image of God, the God that invites us into his presence in the land. The question is whether or not we're gonna take the step of courage and step out of the cell. I want you to take a minute and think about that. What's your jail cell? What are, what are your fears that keep you locked inside, that, that keep you enslaved to the misconstrued image of God? And what will it take to step out of that cell door that's already open and step into the grace of God, into that true presence? You know, I love this quote. We think that courage is the opposite of fear, but it's not. It's the willingness to act in spite of fear. Following God, he never guaranteed us that it would be absent of pain and suffering. But my son didn't die because God is a punishing God. My son died because we live in a broken world where sometimes babies go to heaven much earlier than we want them to. But it is well with my soul because God is a God who makes a covenant promise with us that he doesn't leave us in that space. He invites us into his presence where we can experience his freedom. It's interesting, as you move out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, this idea of land, this covenant between God, his people, and land changes. You don't hear about it when it, when it enters the New Testament. Because when Jesus came, he established his kingdom, and that was the re representation of the land. That is, God's kingdom coming in Jesus' arrival is the establishment of God's presence among us. 
We, that covenant still exists today and when we become followers of Jesus, we have a covenant relationship with, with Christ and God, with the Trinity. And that same opportunity for freedom becomes even more evident where we are free in Christ, where our chains are broken. I thought it was um, encouraging, exciting that today happened to be a communion Sunday because communion is an opportunity for us to corporately remember the covenant promise that God made with us, that Christ made with us. And so in a few minutes, we're gonna um, take communion together. Uh, If you are new to Waterstone or visiting today, we will have communion stations spread out throughout the room. There are gluten-free elements at the back of the room. Um, I'm going to read from, from Luke this morning. And then when you are ready, feel free to go at your leisure to one of the stations. You'll take a piece of the bread off of the loaf and dip it in the cup. And then you can either take the element there or you can take it back to your seat. It's, it's totally up to you. But just want to encourage you to take time this morning to really reflect on what your jail cell looks like and what's keeping you from stepping into the freedom that God offers us. Let me read this morning from Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you are ready, please feel free to come and accept the elements.